0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: This week on Red Inca, we talk about Owen Morgan, the cool, calm Irish English captain and World Cup winner, with a woman who was paid to follow him around.
0: Melinda Farrell, freelance cricket broadcaster, and journalist and writer and whatever else someone asked me to
1: do. Morgan doesn't let many people close to him and in my career I've barely ever chatted to him. So Mel has got closer than most. Here we talk about Morgan's cold reputation, his journey from poor parts of Dublin to the affluent Dulwich College, his dual nationality, how much he didn't like Kolkata, Baz McCullum and England winning the World Cup. 2015 World Cup, Mel. England, I mean, they stank the place up. They should have lost to Scotland, realistically. Scotland threw that game away. It was one of the most bizarre games I've been to. They lost to a bunch of other teams. They don't go through to the second round. While all this is happening, Owen Morgan has just become captain and is also being blackmailed. It's not the greatest time in Owen Morgan's life, is it?
0: Look, it was all really weird. I remember it sort of started off even before that World Cup, during the tri-series that England were playing with India and Australia that was leading up to it. And England were looking really crap then as well. And there was so much scrutiny on him. And I actually remember going to a press conference at the SCG And a reporter asked Owen Morgan a question that I think alluded to the pressure he had been under because of that. And Owen Morgan turned to the journalist and just pierced him with the pale blue eyes that, honestly, it was like something of like the Night King out of Game of Thrones, those eyes that just pierced him and just said in in his quiet way, that's a terrible question and I remember sitting there thinking oh my god I don't ever want to ask a question because I can't handle it if he looks at me that way and he was really intimidating and cold it sort of seemed at that point and there was so much pressure on him because everything was going wrong and he was just giving nothing away and then as everything was continuing to unravel through that World Cup which really was a stinker right to the last game where they were definitely going to be out of it against Bangladesh, he just gave nothing away the whole time. And it was really, in the end, we look back now and it was, in a way, just the start of something and the start of the making of him, I guess. But he told me afterwards when we were doing this story that he was just sitting there watching the game just implode in front of him against Bangladesh and he was just thinking oh my God, this can't be happening. This can't be happening. But I just think the breaking about the Owen Morgan story and the, the story of that England World Cup team that went on to win in 2019 was that so often in sport, you'll hear about someone you know, reaching the low of the low and then it's all inspirational and they go on to have success. But usually that doesn't happen. There's sort of ups and downs along the way. And But that was just a really clear, defining moment at the end of that Bangladesh game in the World Cup. And he'd become captain so recently before then and he hadn't really been happy with the way that they'd been playing either. But it took the most almighty cricket disaster for him to be given the leeway, I think, and that included Andrew Strauss and Trevor Bayliss and Paul Fabres, everyone else around. Obviously not Peter Moores, who, who was pretty soon gone after that. But, yeah, it was so bad then and he was so intimidating. Oh, I'll be honest, I didn't particularly, I didn't know him. I hadn't actually had a conversation with him, but I didn't think he was particularly likeable. He just seemed like a real cold fish and someone who was very intimidating. So that was when I started really covering England was really that summer as well. And so that was sort of the start of it. I wouldn't have thought that I'd be sitting down and writing a big long piece on him within a couple of years because I would have been terrified at the thought (laughs) of it.
1: He's from Dublin, is that right? Yeah, he is from Dublin. And his family's a cricket family? Yeah,
0: his great-grandfather was into it, which is really weird. So I think I put it in there. In so many ways, if you think of it, stereotypical sort of Hollywood movie on a young Irish boy he'd live in the suburbs in Dublin and maybe he'd come from a poorer family with brothers and sisters all around and that was him but his great-grandfather had adopted this real love of cricket and had passed it on to his son who became actually a bit of a local legend. He was he was really talented. He passed it on to Owen's father, Jody, and then that was passed on to the kids. So all the kids loved it. So it's unusual to see a sort of sporting story come out of Dublin that doesn't involve a more traditional sport, certainly a cricketing one. It does tend to cluster in families in Irish cricket with the Joyce's or the other families that you see come through. But that was really multi-generational and it was a pretty frugal existence. They didn't have a lot of money. It was a pretty small house, but they just had this love of cricket. He said cricket was everything to him. His brother even didn't get in trouble when he came home from school once during the school day and his father asked him why he'd come home and he said, I I told the the teacher that there was a test match on and he'd said that I could come home and watch he didn't even get into trouble. Like, that's a cricket-loving family. (laughs) So, yeah, so strange. The other thing that was interesting, he ended up going to school right in the centre of Dublin. He got a scholarship to a Catholic school in Dublin, and it's right down the road from really the main square, the park where the Easter uprising all happened, very, very much everything about there. We're a walk around there, and it is so Dublin and so Irish in a very genteel way. So probably a long way from the kind of rougher horror parts where he came from to a very genteel Catholic private school right in the heart of Dublin.
1: He went to Dulwich School, which is the school of Nigel Farage and Chris Jordan, Dan Norcross, I'm just randomly picking names out at this point. And that's sort of where he becomes sighted by Middlesex and goes up through the Middlesex ranks, isn't it? That's a huge step up because there's a lot of young, talented players in Ireland, but the bigger problem quite often is getting them to develop quickly. Whereas if you put them in that English setup, they quite often go through the roof.
0: He was really grateful and has always been really grateful for the support he got from the school in Dublin because they really allowed him to pursue cricket and helped him get that position at Dulwich School. So for him, he was so focused from that point, like from the time he was sort of 12 or 13, he wanted to play professional cricket. And he'd already identified at a really young age that the only way he was actually going to be able to do that was to go to England because it was so unlikely that it could happen in Ireland or certainly the chances were incredibly slim. So he'd already identified that. So he was really focused about it. One of the things he did say about Dulwich was that, especially when I, you think it's the school of Nigel Farage in particular amongst all those other illustrious names you mentioned, but he did feel like an outsider in a way, but it was a really multicultural boarding school with kids were there from Asia and South Africa and all over the place. So he said if it hadn't been for that fact, he would have found that particularly intimidating. But because it was quite diverse that meant a lot to him and I, I sort of wondered since if that has had a, a even more impact on him as he's grown up because he obviously embraced the diversity of the England team and that meant a lot to him and after they won the World Cup, he highlighted that so beautifully, I think, and eloquently about the different religions and, and races that were all part of that England team and were a strength of it. So I sometimes wondered if that harks back to that experience. He had at Dulwich where he was boarding with people and he felt it was a really diverse environment that actually helped him to feel comfortable and pursue his career. But he was really focused. He knew from the time he he went to Dulwich that he wanted to play cricket there. So the fact that he was spotted by Middlesex, he'd been looked at by a few different people, but they were the ones that really thought, okay, we're going to take a chance on him. And so he was scouted quite young. And I, I think, That was his whole drive anyway. He didn't want to do anything else in life. It was just cricket. It was just get to England. County step was the first step. And Test cricket would obviously be the ultimate step for him.
1: The interesting thing is, and I'll bring this together in a moment, but the interesting thing is Middlesex give him this incredible opportunity, but he actually goes off and stops playing for Middlesex to play in the IPL, which is a very big step within English cricket at that time. And the reason I bring that up is he started in a local club in Dublin. He then goes to Malahide, which is the big club. He then goes to Dulwich, which is the big school. He then goes to Middlesex. He then goes to the IPL. He then goes from Ireland to England. At every step, he was climbing. He's a really focused professional. And I don't mean that at all in a bad way, although... I remember being at Malheu when we were there for that test, you know, when I got taken into the front bar, which was great because they didn't make me pay for a single drink. It was awesome. I don't remember that many details of the night, but when I was there, like I would ask and everyone felt like he had, it wasn't they didn't respect him and they knew he was the best cricketer to sort of come from that area, but they did feel that he was the sort of guy that would always be looking for a greater opportunity. And if you look at his career, that's what he's done. He just keeps leveling up, doesn't he?
0: Well, he does. And I think perhaps what makes it, more notable in his career than because that's what a lot of players do. You know, mm-hmm. there are heaps of players out there in the world who, who who do level up. The thing that made people take more notice or, or comment more or read certain things into it with Owen Morgan was because he was a dual national. And so it was happening, well, in some ways there was a dual nationality and then you throw in the IPL and another format as well. So he was kind of working his way through a couple of different countries and then the, the different formats and the, the different competitions. I've thought a lot about this because he did say to me that probably when he was at Dulwich, it was back when he was at Dulwich that he kind of started thinking of himself, that he belonged in England and that he kind of felt English. And it's funny, and you know, I guess you and I have, as other people do, who are dual nationals and, you know, live in two, you live in two different countries, so people do it differently. Some people might say completely attached to the country they're from or the country they go to. Other people have a bit more dualism about that. I know I certainly do, and I think you probably do as well. And for him, it made him an easy target for that kind of criticism. And it, you know, caused unrest in his own sides as well because he was playing for Ireland as well. He was playing ODIs and white ball cricket for Ireland and I think he was playing over in the in the West Indies. I think Ireland played playing England in the T Twenty World Cup
1: over. In it might have been. Was it the World Cup in two thousand and seven? This happened.
0: Yeah, that was that one. And he said it was. He was sitting on the outfield, being interviewed by, Ian Ward from Sky, and and Ian Ward asked him which dressing room he'd rather be in. And he was pretty honest about it. and He would have rather have been in the, the England dressing room. He's never hidden his ambitions or his drives. He's not being dishonest about it. But at the end, I think he felt when he, he left the Ireland team and started playing for England, I think those who he was friends with and he'd grown up with playing for Leinster, he felt that they understood. And for anyone else, he said this directly to me he said, I've never really learned how to care what other people think Mm -hmm. like if they're not people who who are close to him and that's the thing that just comes across with Owen Morgan if you talk to anyone who knows him and just from observing him as well and and spending a lot of time talking to him he's very much his own man and you hear that again and again he's it's and I think it's one of the reasons that's made him a successful captain is that he's comfortable in his own choices and that doesn't mean he doesn't actually care what People think generally, but when he makes a decision that he feels is right, then he will go with that. And it's done a time and time again, even after he became captain and there was a terrorist attack in Bangladesh and he elected not to go. He and Alex Hales, they were all given the choice. He and Alex Hales decided not to go and he did that knowing full well that he was giving up the captaincy for a tour and he might not get it back. But he made the decision and he was comfortable with it. And again, another time when he was his loyalty to England was questioned in the media and his fitness to be captain. So I find that really remarkable just because I'm the sort of person who always second guesses myself and, and I do worry what other people think about me far too much. And I actually really admire that it's a character trait and someone who can go, yeah, fine, no, this is what I believe and so this is how I'm going to go about it. And I, th- I think you can see that many ways through his career, as you say, levelled up in a certain way. but. I think he still cares a hell of a lot about Ireland, but he also cares about England. That's his home now. So I can understand that perhaps maybe a bit more than other people can, just from, you know, personal experience.
1: I'm not sure how I felt, even as myself as an Australian who lives in England and has lived here for almost, how long have I lived here? 12, 13 years at that point. But if you ask my son, he will say he's half Australian, right? And he also identifies with being Sri Lankan as well, but he's born and bred, well, born in England. And so when he gets older, who is going to tell him that he is not Australian or Sri Lankan? Whereas to him, that's who he is. So it's a very interesting thing. But the reason I always found Morgan so fascinating when it comes to all that sort of thing of him feeling English is because at the exact same time, and I don't know if you know this story, but Paul Sterling came out when no one knew who Paul Sterling was. Paul Sterling had played about three games for Middlesex, a handful of games for Ireland. No one was asking Paul Sterling his opinions on anything. And Paul Sterling came out and said, I will only ever play for Ireland. I will never play for England. Right? And I don't know if Paul Sterling has changed his mind over the years. And perhaps it actually held him back a little bit because he would, I think at times he probably would have played for England had he pushed himself more towards that. So you do see that. So it is a very complicated thing. And then the other thing with Owen Morgan is that he is not a sentimental person at all. Let me tell you my favorite Owen Morgan story. And I have not one of the reasons I really liked your piece is because I don't cover ODIs day in, day out. I don't actually know him at all. I don't bump into him in hotels. We don't have that many friends in common. I just don't really know Owen Morgan. But there's one story I always remember, maybe 2012, I was in Kolkata when the IPL was on. And he was interviewed by not a Bollywood actress, but one of the other big movie actresses in India. And she did like a big glossy spread in the middle of the newspaper. And the first question was, do you like it here in Kolkata? And Owen Morgan said no, right? That's all he said. And then she obviously, and this is in print, so you can't can't see his cold eyes at this point. But I knew him well enough to know that's what he would have done. And then she, being the sort of bubbly actress trying to do an interview, went... Oh, really? Why is that? And he goes into detail of why he doesn't like Kolkata. And it's so clinical. And he is that kind of person. And chatting to people in Malahide and all these sorts of things, you do get a really strong sense that if you don't know him very well, he would come across as a very abrasive character. And you obviously do know him. I'm more than happy to keep him as an abrasive character in my head. But I think that those sorts of things all play into the fact that he is known as this very standoffish person isn't he I mean that's his reputation
0: yeah and so I had that picture of him as the ice man in fact it wasn't that long so it's just after the 2015 world cup I have really clear memory of this as well the first ODI that ended up being amazing at Edgebaston between England and New Zealand that really kick-started in an incredible way that run that they had they had the pre-match press conferences in the indoor nets at Edgebaston. And first of all, in walks Brendan McCullum, And, you know, he's Baz, isn't he? He he's comes in, he's laid back, he's smiling. Hey, Mel, how are you doing? Hey, to everyone else, really friendly. Gave a press conference that was warm and funny and relaxed. He walked out and Owen Morgan walked in. And all of a sudden I, I could feel myself almost of to sweat going, because I really wanted to ask a question. But I was quite nervous about asking a question. It's stupid. I can't think of any other time. I really felt that way. But, you know, I asked the question just waiting for the piercing blue beams to, to come out and, and go straight through my soul. And it wasn't till later. So I didn't really talk to him that year. It wasn't until the next year I was in India making a show with Dirk Nannis. And I remember I said something to Dirk Nannis about this, and he looked at me like I was completely mad and said, are you kidding? He's a great guy. He's one of the greatest guys you'll ever meet. I was like, oh, I, okay. Then over the course of that summer, I ended up just interviewing him a few times at things where there was no other real media and we kind of just got to chatting and it was like it was chatting to a completely different person to what I had kind of built up in my head and that sort of just developed every time and I I started thinking he actually is a really nice bloke and he's, he's incredibly personal and he's quite warm. He was so generous with his time when we did that piece And it's just a really interesting perception though because I also think he warmed up a lot in front of the camera and at press conferences and it started to change. Once they started to win, it started to be more his team. I think he was able to just let the shutters come up a bit. But what you will always see is, is if he's in a hostile environment or if he does think that he's being asked silly questions, the shutters come down very quickly and he can just not give anything away. The flip side of that, is they're not giving anything away and that being not abrasive but just calm and honest is that's what players love about him, particularly bowlers. They love that about him. They love being able to walk up to him when they're having a really crap over and him just being really calm and and just being honest with them about what he thinks they should do and and then they just love it. So it's really weird how his personality has been really fascinating to me as well. And when I told him that I used to be really intimidated by him, He was horrified and he had absolutely no idea that anyone could possibly feel that way. He took the
1: white cat off his lap and he stopped stroking it. (laughs) No, it was just, I don't
0: know, it was just funny, isn't it? It just goes to show that even when you're there in press conferences, what you, you see in front of you is only just one small part of the story. So I was really pleased that I was given the opportunity to actually just find out that he's a really nice guy. That sounds like it was a shock, but you know what I mean. (laughs) I was going there from being afraid of of the stare.
1: I talked about the levelling up before. One of the more interesting things is that I think as much as anything, he may have felt more at home in England, but I think as much as anything, he did want to be the top of his game. And at that stage, it was probably test cricket. It would obviously eventually be one day cricket and IPL for him. But the God save the Queen thing, I honestly think he's such a cricket guy that he always just went, test cricket is the ultimate, so I'm going to be in that. And he never really factored in that he would be playing for England and that a lot of journalists, a lot of fans do not like the fact that he wouldn't sing God Save the Queen. It took him a very long time to sort of overcome that sort of stuff. I know he eventually started singing it, didn't he? Which is a ridiculous thing anyway because I don't sing my national anthem. I don't sing any national anthems and no one cares. You you
0: and I are the worst in the press box, actually. (laughs) We're always too busy doing something and I suddenly turn around and you and I are the only ones sitting down.
1: Well, no, I leave, if you remember, because I had a fight with the ICC about anthems. So if there's an anthem being played in a ground, I go out the back and sit on a toilet. Try policing that ICC. Um, (laughs) But essentially, a lot of people see international cricket as a nationalist thing, whereas I think he saw it as just the ultimate and he had to get to the ultimate. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, I think that is. From the start, he wanted to be the best and was driven by that. I do think that there is still some of that duality in in him feeling at home there. But things like the anthem, I think even though he, as I said, he's very much his own man and he's comfortable in his own decisions, there must have been an awareness to the pressures from different sides to be certain things. He can't have been unaware of that, even though he, he says he blocked a lot of it out and didn't really worry about it too much. I think the fact that he started singing it meant that he perhaps was truly at home in the position he was in. You know, he'd made that position his own. He'd had the success. And I think the more confident you are in where you are, the more it enables you to do what you want. And if the criticism comes, it comes. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I I can admire the fact that He didn't sing it just because he felt that some people were expecting him to do it. And, again, you know, it was like the trip to Bangladesh. I think Michael Vaughan wrote at the time that he would never be able to look his teammates in the eye and lead them onto a cricket field again.
1: That was Michael Vaughan's only bad take, Mel, that one.
0: (laughs) Nasser saying was really, really critical of him. And there were loads of things like that. I don't know. It's so easy to judge, isn't it, from the outside, an action like that, whereas like I said, for us, you know, it's more complicated. Like you say, with your kids, it's like how stupid it is that my family, even though you know, grew up in Australia, I've lived most of my adult life now, I think in England. And yet, because we came out of Ireland in the potato famine five generations ago, my family feels like we're very, very much attached to our Irish roots. And that's really strong. It's funny. I find that living in different places around the world just makes you a, perhaps a little more understanding of that kind of thing. But it, look, he was the outsider in many ways. And, and I think that's been good for people coming into the team, whether it be for Joffre Archer, who grew up in another country, or whether it be players from South African background or from a non-Christian religion in the team. I think that probably has been good for that team, that they're being led by someone who knows what it's like to
1: be an outsider also and we haven't talked about this much what did you give a sense about him like he failed as a test cricketer and realistically if you look at his record and you look at all the pieces i wrote at the time he never made runs in first class cricket so the idea that he was ever going to make them in test cricket there was obviously a technical issue there with him edging to slips which he doesn't have to worry about in limited overs cricket as much did you get a feeling that that burnt him at all because i never thought it did
0: no, I definitely didn't get that sense whatsoever. I mean, he was obviously disappointed, but it seems to be part of that thing in being comfortable with your decisions that he knew that he'd given it his best shot. Maybe things could have gone a bit differently in one way or another, but he had achieved something really huge and I think was really important for his dad as well in going and playing test cricket. The fact that it didn't work out, he didn't let that stop him from having... A really incredible career which is still going and I think that probably helps him reconcile with it as well you know if he dropped out of everything at that mm. point and not come back but it, an interesting thing about when he was dropped from test cricket is that he went and played in the IPL and Angus Fraser ended up ringing him from Middlesex and saying look if you want to get back into the test team you need to come back and play for Middlesex And he said, no, again, this, you know, no, I'm I'm not going to do that with the greatest respect because I'm learning more in these couple of months in India than I've learned in a couple of years playing in Middlesex. So even at that point when he got out of the test side, I think his focus wasn't, oh, I'm going to do everything that they say and try and get back in. It was just still on making himself a better cricketer. And that's what he felt at the time was making him a better cricketer. So he seems to be pretty zen. Mm. about a lot of stuff and able to not just own his decisions but the times that he hasn't succeeded as well and at the moment he's looking back on a career that will always be really defined by that four-year journey that ended up at lords on an incredible day in that 2019 world cup and most people don't get that
1: (laughs) just briefly we actually did quite well they won a world cup Uh, spoiler alert for those who haven't followed it if you look at that World Cup, there is the off-the-leash batting sort of comes from Trevor Bayliss, who just tried to free up all the players to a certain extent. The fact that they went all-in on all-rounders really comes from the analytics side, I think, as much as anything. If we can bat to 11, that gives everyone at the top more freedom to bat. But the sort of spirit of all that, if you take away the coach and the analyst, uh, comes back to really the relationship that morgan had with brendan mccullum and brendan mccullum never quite had the horses to be able to pull off what morgan did i mean you could still argue that mccullum did more for new zealand cricket than morgan did for english cricket but only because morgan had all those talented players around and mccullum was always trying to you know sort of pull things together from the limited playing pool but what is their relationship and how did that all sort of come about
0: well obviously playing in the ipl was a huge part of it. They both share a love of horse racing, a real passion for it, which I think helped. They did talk about cricket a lot, and something that Owen told me was that he really liked Brendan's ideas. They were really simple. He said you just had to have the balls to pull the trigger, and really, that's what happened post twenty fifteen World Cup. Is basically Owen Morgan had the balls to trigger these ideas that, that even before Trevor Bayliss, what was Frustrating him, I found this really fascinating. The one-day side that he was in that was being led by Alistair Cork and coached by Peter Moores, they were so regimented. It was like the top three players had to get to 60 at a runner a ball, one in every four times they've added. And then the others had to get there at a strike rate of 80. And then he had to get to 25 at a strike rate of 100 every four times times you went out and so the whole thing in, in his head was going out to bat he had to get to 25 mm. at, a, at a run of ball which is crazy like when you look at it now but that was the sort of stuff that he really wanted to sweep away I think a lot of that came with Brendan McCullum as well and, and talking to him watching him but also I think it, Brendan McCullum had a way with that New Zealand side of just making people fall in love with the team and people did and it was really interesting because although they come across as very different characters, what happened in that summer, it could almost only have happened between England and New Zealand. New Zealand, this lovable team that was captained by such a lovable maverick like Brendan McCullum, And all of a sudden, this England side came out from that Joss Butler ferocious, insane attack at Edgebaston where they made 400. All of a sudden, everyone fell in love with that England team as well so even though you sort of seemed like you had fire and ice as opposing captains but the same result and I think in so many ways that England learned to enjoy their cricket from going out and thinking I've got to make 25 off 25 balls or okay I'm in the top three I've got to try and make 60 all of a sudden you could see it out there both sides were just having fun they Mm -hmm. were really enjoying themselves. So I think that sense of fun, I don't think Owen Morgan didn't know how to have fun or what that was, but that seemed to be a little bit contagious because that was one of the most just purely joyful summers of cricket that I can remember, that series, that two-test series that went into those ODIs, and that was just full of joy, and And I do think that some of that came from Brendan McCullum. That, and the, the two things that you talk to New Zealand cricketers and you talk to England cricketers There's one thing that they'll say about Brendan McCullum and Owen Morgan that they both say it about them individually without talking to each other. I've heard this a lot and they'll just say that they're able to keep things on an even keel, whether they win and play brilliantly, whether they lose and play badly. Neither of them ever really change things too much. There's a certain amount of consistency and level and calm in that. So even though they seem to be different, I think that that's something that they really share. So there was sort of technical and and ways to attack that I think sort of came along from New Zealand's aggressive style of play and that really helped in that series. Because if you've got too aggressive, you know, it's like the Lennon-McCartney thing of pushing each other a little bit further. That's kind of what they did, particularly with the batting in that series i sort of see that with the two of them as why it was just a really great time for them to play a series and playing the side that had such freedom like new zealand did i think really enabled england to be able to have the balls to pull the trigger
1: what do you think his legacy will be in cricket because it's complicated by the fact that at the same time he's winning a world cup for england ireland is a test nation Within England, I think he will be accepted as the man who gave them a World Cup when it looked like they may never win one. But outside of England, how do you think he will be remembered in 20 years time?
0: I think that will absolutely be the lasting legacy for sure. Because you know, I think over time, more and more, as people move from one country to the other, I mean, we see these people still make jokes about the England team being full of South Africans, you know, those sorts of comments. And they become sort of meaningless in a, world that's more global although now with the pandemic who knows maybe we'll all go back to being fiercely nationalistic and no one will go anywhere or play for anyone else we'll become a lot less mobile but I think generally speaking even from sort of 20 or 30 years back the world now is more accepting of people from different countries and having dual citizenships or even maybe citizenships of three countries different cultural backgrounds so I don't know if that will. I mean, uh, Ireland's progression really has not been contingent on Owen Morgan. He's, he's one player of, of many and that there have been a lot of great Irish players who've helped them progress a lot. I think that has more to do with the structural imbalances of world cricket that have prevented Ireland from progressing as quickly or as, as far as they could have. But I do think it was that perhaps magical sports story that doesn't happen, that you have a team that was so utterly shit in 2015, that it was embarrassing, genuinely embarrassing that they couldn't progress through past the group stages, to actually going through or showing the promise and being tested at at the Champions Trophy when they fell away. If they'd won there, I think it might have changed the story a lot, but to finish in the game that was played and to almost remember in that World Cup, They were staring at defeat. They had backs to the walls and they had to win every game because they lost their nerve a little bit. They pulled the trigger, but then things were getting a little bit jittery, so they had to find their balls and pull the trigger. I don't want to harp on that point. That sounds maybe a bit weird, talking about balls and triggers, although you probably like it, Jared. But they had to get to the point where they remembered that. They had to remember, okay, this is what we're here for. It's actually a great sports movie to finally get there and Poor New Zealand in the end, it would have to be New Zealand, wouldn't it? The ones who kick-started them in that one-day series in 2015, who unfortunately, you know, lost in, in well, didn't actually lose, but, you know, <laughs> uh, didn't get to lift the trophy in such controversial circumstances. There's so much in all of that, that it's a great symmetry in that cycle of four years and, and then his journey as well, you know, a kid from a pretty poor area in Dublin ending up leading England to a World Cup at Lords. It's just an amazing story and I think that will be remembered. It was such a, a huge summer for English cricket and that World Cup was such a, an enormous achievement at that time. I think that will end up being his legacy. Even if they were to say come and win the T20 World Cup whenever it's next played, I think that World Cup will end up being it because it's a story of a plan that started in embarrassment and abysmal failure and ended up leading to the biggest possible success.
1: Melinda Farrell, thank you for coming on.
0: Love you, J-Rod. Miss you, J-Rod. All
1: right, we're ending there. Thanks for listening. You can follow my guest at melinda farrell on twitter i'm also there please review share do all the things that you can do with our podcast it really does help and this show is only made possible by the people who support us at patreon so thank you all to everyone who already does and if you can help us out for more podcasts like this please do red inker is made by me jared kimber nick mccorriston pleases your ear hammers and our theme tune is called the prisoner by the red cricket Red Inca listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.